We are in Judges chapter 7 tonight. And it's in the middle of the story of uh, one of the major characters in the book of Judges by the name of Gideon. You remember we started our study on Gideon last week. And uh, the Lord had appeared to Gideon and he was a little bit uncertain about what he was being asked to do. But it seems as though he uh, was at least willing to go along with what the Lord had said, especially with the miraculous sign that God had given him by consuming the offering that he had brought. Uh, and it really was a convincing thing. But beyond that event, Gideon still had somewhat of a doubtful character. And so when he was told by the Lord that he was to go against the armies of the Midianites, he wanted to have the assurance from the Lord that it was really the right time and the right way for him to approach this expectation of the Lord. So he put a fleece out, literally. He decided that if the Lord was going to do what he had said, then the Lord wouldn't mind him testing that situation in a way that would prove to him that it definitely was the right thing. So he took a fleece of, a, of an animal and laid it on the ground and asked the Lord to, the next morning, let the ground be dry, but the fleece be wet. And it was exactly as he had asked. But he began to think that perhaps that might not be necessarily a good enough test, so he asked a second op opportunity to test whether or not it was of the Lord by saying, well, tonight uh, would instead of making the ground dry and the fleece wet, would you make the ground wet and the fleece dry? And that was exactly as it was the next day. So he was convinced that after those tests that he was going to go ahead and do exactly as the Lord had commanded him. Keep in mind that earlier on in the story, in verse 34 of chapter 6, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. So he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that empowerment would include his willingness to serve the Lord uh, in every situation that God, that God would put him into. And that's an important aspect of serving the Lord, being willing to take the risk of trusting in God. And that's what Gideon was doing. He was trusting in the Lord that he would uh, be able to get enough men on such a short notice to go out and defeat these Midianites and the Amalekites who were with them, a group of men that totaled 135,000. And it was a very fearful time for the people of Israel. And Gideon was stepping into this with no assurance that any of the people of God would join him in the battle. So now we see in chapter 7 his beginning to bring about the plan of God by calling the various tribes to come to his aid. It says in verse 1 of chapter 7, Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped before the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morat. So we found out in the last part of chapter 
six that he had a total of about 32,000 men from the various tribes around him, the Manassites and, and the uh, Jebusites, a few of the uh, uh, people from various tribes joining together with him, and Gideon now has an army of 32,000 men. But that's only a quarter or so of the number of men that the Midianites had. And yet he's now ready to go in and begin the battle plan. But he says in verse 2, But the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now think about that. They were terribly outnumbered, and yet God is saying, No, this that's too many, 32,000 against 135,000, the people could still say they won the battle. They could still take the credit. They could still take the glory that was to go to God alone. And frankly, that is a problem still in the nation of Israel today. When they became a nation in 1948, they needed the Lord's help, and they knew it. And when the Lord gave them the help that they did need, they gave him the credit for it. It was beyond their ability to defend themselves against all of the Arab nations who had been coming against them when they declared their independence as a nation in 1948. It was a miraculous gift of God to allow them to enter into that land and to defend themselves against the uh, forces that surrounded them and it was a miraculous thing. They recognized it as a miracle from God. The war in 1967 also was a miracle that they attributed to God because they were overwhelmed again by Egypt and Syria in particular. And it was a very, very difficult thing. They were totally unaware of the uh, pending doom. And when it struck, it struck suddenly, and they were very fearful that they were going to lose the battle quickly. But the Lord turned things around for them, and he did show them that he was still their God, and they put their faith in him to the extent that they gave him the glory for the victory that they had. And then in 1973, they began to think, we are doing this with our own military strength. We're able to defend ourselves. We have developed technologies that we have now available to us to make sure that nobody will do us harm without getting terribly beaten by us. And that is when things began to turn. And after that, 1994, 2006 against Lebanon, in this present situation that they're facing and in several of the skirmishes that have taken place since the uh, Oslo Accords, the people of Israel have believed themselves to be able to defend themselves. And they haven't been looking to their God. They're not giving their God the credit. Now there is coming a day when that will obviously change. That day is going to come when the Ezekiel War takes place. The Ezekiel War, as described by Ezekiel, is an overwhelming force coming against them again, and it's this time that they will not be able to defend themselves, 
but God will defend them. And it will be obvious to them that God is indeed interceding on their behalf against the enemies that are attacking them in that battle that's described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So there will come a day when Israel will recognize that God is defending them. That's not the way they feel in this present situation. But again, that's going to change. Someday in the near future, I believe, they will be able to say, God is going to get the glory instead of my own hand has saved me. Well, verse 3 continues and says, Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead, where they had been gathering together. Now that is something that was available to any of the men who were to go into battle. According to Deuteronomy chapter 20, God had made provision for those who were fearful, those who had just uh, planted a vineyard, those who have just built a home or just got married or were engaged. They could be excluded from any battle because of those conditions. Here, Gideon is just suggesting to this group of 32,000 men, if there are any of you who are fearful, turn back home. That is according to the Mosaic Law. It's acceptable. You will not be held responsible for that action. I'm not really sure how many Gideon might have thought perhaps would be wanting to do that, but as it turned out, it tells us in the latter part of the verse of chapter 7, verse 3, and 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Now they're down to a much smaller number, 10,000 against 135,000, less than 1 in 12 or 1 in 13. Not very good odds. I don't think that anybody would want to bet on the nation of Israel with those kinds of odds. But God says, you know what, Gideon? There's still too many people. That's what he says in verse 4. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them there for you. It, then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So Gideon is hearing directly from the Lord and showing Gideon this is what we need to do. You need to reduce the number of men that are with you. And Gideon is apparently, well, I'm not sure if it's a reluctance on his part. This is not something that we're told. But it certainly would be in my case to wonder, Lord, are you sure? Lord, is, 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 am I hearing you right? Is this what you just said? Reduce it again? Well, God has a purpose. God has a plan. And he's bringing that plan for his glory not for Gideon's, but for him. And if God says, I can do it with fewer men, then Gideon's going to have to trust that God will indeed bring it to pass. You know, we often say, one man plus God is a majority. And that really is the truth. But Gideon is here being tested. This is not something that has ever been done, at least as far as the record in the Word of God is concerned, ever before that God would reduce the number of people to enter into a battle. God has done miraculous things in the battles that the people of Israel have had. Over their history, God did wonderful miracles 
on behalf of Joshua. You remember those stories in the book of Joshua. On behalf of Moses, as they defeated the Amalekites and, and the Amorites and, and the, all the others that, that came against them, the Amalekites, God did miraculous things on behalf of his people. But never ever was there a case where God said, you've got too many people with you. This is the first time, and as far as I know, it may very well be the only time that we see such a thing as this. But God is doing something in a very remarkable way here for not only Gideon, but for you and me as well. Because we need to understand that what God is doing for Gideon, he's using that to show us, by Gideon's example, that we can trust God no matter what the circumstances, no matter what we are faced with, no matter what limitations we may think we are having to deal with. When God is on our side, all we need to know is that God is on our side. And so that is what Gideon is now continuing to learn. Well, verse 5, now that God has said, I'm going to test them, he gives them this set of instructions. He brings the people down in verse 5, it says, to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down to their knees to drink water. So now it's pretty obvious Gideon's got 300 that did one thing and 9,700 that did another thing. And I'm sure that Gideon was probably thinking, well, 9,700 is not that much less than 10,000. So, uh, well, I'll have to lose those 300 men, but that's okay. God's in it. But this is what God tells him. No, Gideon, that's not the way it's going to work. Verse 7 tells us, or rather verse 7, yes, tells us, By then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. 300 men against 135,000. 300 men who probably don't have any weapons of war. Remember, this was a time when the people of Israel were oppressed and they did not have weapons available to them. They had plowshares, or goads, if you will. They had certain farming implements that they could probably use, a sickle perhaps, but there's no indication that they had any kind of soldiery weaponry. And this is an interesting thing because the 135,000 men of the Midianites and the Amalekites are well armed. Well, it says in verse 8, So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands. And he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened to go down against the camp. And then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. Now, there, 
at the top of the hill, looking down at the great crowd of Midianites and Amalekites and all the men of the east with all their camels and all their weaponry. And there must have been a bit of a sense of fear in Gideon's heart, which God now is helping him to overcome. God gives us, gave Gideon, but he gives us the encouragement to go forward when we don't think we can. And that's another important message to us as we read this portion of Scripture, that God will not leave us or forsake us. He will not allow us to fail on a mission that He has sent us on. And that should be an encouragement to all of us. But God knows what's in our heart. And in this case, Gideon was indeed a little bit apprehensive because so many men had been taken from him with only 300 men at his side. How are they going to be able to do this? Well, he needed that encouragement and God knew it and so God gave it. He said, go down with your servant, Purah, and sneak into the edge of the camp and listen to what they are saying. And when you do so, you will be encouraged. So he does so. It says in verse 12, Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as a sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man, a Midianite, telling a dream to his companion. And he said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Now, is it a coincidence that they came down to that particular place and heard that particular conversation? This is a God thing. God set it up. You know, in the Hebrew language, there is no word for coincidence. And here, God is proving himself to Gideon in a very remarkable way. Take note of the dream that they overheard being spoken at the right time when they first arrived. They have overheard that conversation. The man said, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. Barley was a secondary crop. It was really not usually very commonly used to feed the multitude of people unless there was a great famine in the land and they had no wheat, no grain from the regular crop. So barley was a secondary crop that came up early in the year and they used it primarily to feed their animals. But in a lot of famines, they would resort to eating barley as well. And here this Midianite sees in a dream a loaf of barley. And don't think of a loaf as being the kind of loaf that we typically see in our day when we make a loaf of bread. That would be more like a small biscuit or cake that was called a loaf, but it was not enough to feed very many people, if perhaps maybe one or two at best. But this man sees in his vision a loaf of barley, something of less value and very small. Now that's a good picture of Gideon in his own estimation, remember. He was the least of his family, he said. But God had said that he was a mighty man of valor. So this dream 
is specifically for Gideon to hear. And it goes on to say, Then his companion, in verse 14, answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon. And again, I'm mindful of the fact that there was not very much likelihood that they even had a sword among them, that they had God with them. But the Midianite sees this as a warning in this dream that this friend of his has had, that Gideon is going to strike. How he knew Gideon by name, how he knew his family history, how he knew that uh, he was even nearby, we have no idea except that perhaps God put it on his mind. But God is in control and he's doing for Gideon what needs to be done and he's doing in the Midianite camp what needs to be done to allow Gideon to be a success in this venture that he has begun for the Lord. That's what's important. God prearranges on both sides of the situation every detail that must be in place in order for his perfect plan to be fulfilled. Remember, we saw that in our New Testament studies in the book of Acts recently with the Apostle Paul, then Saul of Tarsus, on his way to Damascus. God was working in him and telling him what he must do at the same time that he was working in Ananias in Damascus, a servant of the Lord who would be told by the Lord to go to where Paul was so that Paul could become the apostle that he would ultimately become. God was working on both sides of that situation. He did the same thing with Peter in Joppa with the preparation to go into the Gentiles' home, the Roman centurion. God had prepared the centurion and God had prepared Peter at the same time for that one event. Both sides of that particular event needed to be dealt with by the Lord in order for him to bring to pass that which he had intended. That's what's going on here as well in this story of Gideon. It says in verse 15, And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He realized God is indeed in this and he has no reason to fear. He was ready for whatever comes now because God has showed to him that this is definitely going to be a good day for Gideon and his 300 men. He worshipped, and then he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. 300 men. Were they encouraged? I think by hearing the voice of Gideon, the confidence that he had, there must have been a great deal of confidence instilled in their hearts as well. So he goes on and tells us how he begins now to devise a plan. It tells us in verse 16, Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, 100 men each, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. So picture this, pitchers, picture this, a pitcher of or jug of just a vessel of clay with a lit torch inside it so that you can't see the light from the torch at this point. They're holding 
a clay jar in one hand and they're holding not a sword, but a trumpet in the other. Now, if they've got swords, there must be very few of them and they can't be in their hands. They are in their sheath if they are at all available. But they're being prepared to go down this hill against 135,000 men with a jar and a torch in one hand and a horn, shofar, ram's horn, in the other. It says in verse 17, He said to them, Look at me and do likewise. I like that statement. And that's what a leader should be able to say. A leader in any of God's people's churches, organizations, gatherings, the leader must have that kind of confidence in being able to say to the people, do what I do. Paul did that. He said, emulate me, imitate me, as I imitate Christ. Paul imitated Christ and said that that was his desire to do, and it's my desire to do so as well. And in my desire to do that which Paul desired to do, I have the confidence in saying to you, do what I do as I do what God wants me to do, as I trust in Him, as I walk with Him, as I learn from Him to teach others to do the same. I want to be able to say that I can be imitated because I imitate Christ. I don't have the confidence in that as Paul did, but I have a desire for that to be the case. Gideon has this same desire now. He tells his people, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Now, in some of your translations, it may say something like, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. The intent is the same. They shout this shout, indicating that they're well armed and they are having no trouble convincing the number of people that are with them that God is on their side. And this is the idea as they have separated into three companies spread all around the entire camp now of the Midianites along that valley and they are doing what Gideon has told them to do. It tells them in verse 19, tells us, So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outposts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, that's about 10 o'clock at night, and just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and they broke the pitchers that were in their hands. So they blew the trumpets, and by breaking the pitchers or the jars, the torch light now was visible. And all of a sudden, there's light all around the Midianite camp. A sudden shout that's heard everywhere. A great sound of victory coming from the Israelites. The people of the Midianites are most of them fast asleep with a few people on watch. And they now are awakened to this sudden attack in the middle of the night. And needless to say, it caused a great deal of confusion among the Midianites. It says in verse 20, Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, 
they held the torches in their left hands and trumpets in the right hands for blowing, and they cried, The sword of the Lord and Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. And when the three hundred blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia, toward Zerara, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. So they were confused. They started swinging their swords, thinking that they were next to people who were attacking them. The enemy was in their camp, and they were just slaughtering themselves. And they began then to flee from the Israeli army that really they thought was much larger than 300 men by a lot. And so that fear instilled by the Lord was what caused them to run away instead of fight. And the men of Israel, it tells us in verse 23, gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. So they've got now an, a larger army of men that are now joining the 300 to chase after the Midianites. And then it tells us in verse 24, Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Bara and the Jordan. So it was the responsibility of the Ephraimites to keep the armies of the Midianites and the Amalekites from crossing over the Jordan. They weren't totally successful with that, but they were given a responsibility to do that. And in the meantime, Gideon and all of the other armies that were with him from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh begin now to chase after the Midianites across the Jordan. So it says, All the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Bara and the Jordan River. And then verse 25 it says, And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And then they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. So the people of Ephraim were able to do a very good thing. They took care of two of the kings of the Midianites and the Amalekites, and they present the heads of those two kings to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. But they had a problem. It says in verse 1 of chapter 8, Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? They were complaining that Gideon didn't allow them to come to the battle. He gave them opportunity along with the other men, but the majority of them left. Only the 300 were chosen because God was in it. And now the Ephraimites are complaining that they didn't have a part in the victory that Gideon had in attacking the Midianites and being so successful in causing them to depart. It says in verse 1 again, they're asking the question, why have you done this by not calling us when you went out to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply for it. And so Gideon said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And was I able to do, what was I able to do in comparison with you? So Gideon is trying to console them. 
But and he is very successful. It says, then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. So he's reminding them, look, you did have victory in a battle that you have just defeated two of the kings. Aren't you satisfied with that? It's more than I've done, really. Gideon is humbling himself, and the people of Ephraim are now satisfied with his answer. For now. Then in verse, verse 4 it says, then When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Now, he's got the 300 men with him that are still pursuing the Midianites who have crossed over the Jordan and now he's in Succoth on the eastern side in the land of the eastern half-tribe of Manasseh and they're refusing to help him by giving him the bread they need to receive the nourishment that would enable them to continue on without having to be so exhausted and worn out from the journey. The men of Succoth refused. And right or wrong, Gideon's response is, payback day is coming. He goes on from there, and it says in verse 8, Then when he went up from there to Penuel, another community in the eastern region, east of the Jordan River, in the eastern side, for the half-drive of Manasseh, that territory, and he goes to them with the same appeal. It says, he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. So he spoke again to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Again, he's proclaiming that when he returns, he's going to take vengeance on their resistance and, and their unwillingness to help him out. When God says, Vengeance is mine, he means that and he doesn't want it to be something that we are going to do. Now, yes, Gideon was anointed by the Lord under the anointing of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit had fallen on him to perform the victory that he had performed against the Midianites with the 300 men. There's no indication in the Scriptures that God is with Gideon in these two matters. And as from this point on, we seemed to see a small, unwelcome change in Gideon's attitude. It will grow into a real problem later, as we shall soon find out. But in verse 10 it says, Now Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, quite a distance away, and their armies with them, about 15,000, that's all that remained, who were left of the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. And by the way, Israel had picked up a lot of metal in that particular uh, spoil that was left behind by the defeated army. Then Gideon, verse 11, went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Noba and Jogbaha, and he attacked the army, attacked rather the army while the camp fell, felt secure. And when Ziba and Zulmuna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. 
So again, he's facing a large number of enemy with only a very few men at his side. But God gives the victory. We're not told how that took place, but it says that God, uh, that Gideon routed the whole army. Verse 13 says, Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Haraz. And he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and inter- interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. And then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. He gave them a lesson. The thorns and the briars were used to punish those men, 77 of them. And then he goes to the city of Penuel, and it tells us simply in verse 17, then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. That's beyond what he had said. Now, it may be that the men of Penuel resisted when he started tearing down the tower, as he did tell them he would do. And so it might have been just simply because of that, that Gideon defended himself while he tore down their tower and the men of Penuel were defeated. But it doesn't really say that. It may be simply that he was very, very angry with the men of Penuel, and his anger got the best of him, perhaps. We're not absolutely sure, but it seems to be the trend that follows Gideon for the rest of his days. Well, verse 18 says, And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And so they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Now we're not told about the event that he just asked about. This taking and killing men at Tabor was not something that is recorded in Scripture. But as we find out, it's a very dear thing to his heart. He asked this question for a reason. And their response is, As you are, so they were also. They resembled a son of a king. Keep that phrase in mind, because we'll see something like it as we move forward in the text. Then he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And then he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. So Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. So this tauntingly challenging Gideon to finish the job. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. Take note of the fact that they had specific ornaments on their camels' necks in the shape of a crescent. That goes all the way back to the Babylonian worship in the time of Nineveh when the languages were, when the men were scattered by changing the languages because they attempted to build a tower up to the heavens. That was a long time ago. But that worship of the moon and the symbol of that worship was a crescent, is very ancient. And unless you're not familiar 
uh, with what's going on in the Middle East, I think I should remind you that the crescent moon is a symbol of Islam. It's still around today. Mohammed didn't design that symbol. It is a symbol that is ancient, many, many years prior to the time of Mohammed. And that's one of the things that I look at, and it may just simply be coincidence, but remember, that's not a kosher word. Well then, in verse 22 it says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Oh, what an opportunity for Gideon now to be offered this position as their king. Oh, what a wonderful tribute to him and his grandeur and his mighty acts that he has done on behalf of the people. Not for Gideon, not for his sons. It's only for God. And Gideon here answers well. He says in verse 23, But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Wise, wise choice of words. Gideon was recognizing that God had said he will be their king and he doesn't want anything to do with that. However, he does slide down a slippery slope in this next section. As we read it, take note of what takes place in Gideon's heart. It says then in verse 24, Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, We will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into the earrings, into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, about 40 to 50 pounds or so of gold. That's quite a substantial amount of gold. Uh, and it says besides that, also the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around the camel's necks. So they gave him a great deal of wealth. And as a result of that, Gideon began to slip away from God's perfect will. It tells us in verse 27, Then Gideon made with it, made it into an ephod, and set it up in the city of Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot there with it. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. So he set up this ephod as a display. And all the people of Israel came to it and worshipped it. And they played the harlot there because in worshipping it, they began to call upon other gods. Not the God of Israel, but they began to worship other gods. And they played the harlot there and it became a snare to Gideon. Sometimes excessive wealth can prove to be a snare to any of us. We need to be on guard against those kinds of temptations that come our way to just take what shouldn't belong to us. We should give it to God instead. And let God distribute it as He wills. That wasn't the case with Gideon in this matter. And it proved to be a real problem. It says in verse 29, Then Jerubabel, which is the name that his father had given him, this is Gideon, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. 
And Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. Number one, he took a lot of wives to himself. It wasn't God's will. He was stepping out of line. He was imitating, not God, but the kings of the other nations around him. He said he didn't want to be their king, but he was beginning to act like a king. In fact, it tells us in verse 31, he also had a concubine. In addition to the many wives that he had, who gave him 70 sons, it says he had a concubine who was in Shechem. And she also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Now, in the Hebrew language, there are two words that form the one word Abimelech. The first is Abi, which is plural for Abba, which means father, or not plural, but it is possessive. It means my father. So Abi, my father, Melech, and Melech means king. The man Gideon gave his son the name, my father is king. So he said, I will not be king to the people. But later on, after apparently many years, he sort of made himself into that position, if not by election, by at least desire. Well, it tells us the end of the story. Verse 32, Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. And so it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. Thus, the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their god, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Gideon in accordance with the good that he had done for Israel. So they had told Gideon, we want you to be our king and your sons also. But they didn't want his sons to be king after all, after he had died. So they changed their mind. They began to worship the gods of the Canaanites once again. Just as it had been in the previous history, so it is now again. They're falling back into that downward spiral and they're rejecting their God. It began when Gideon made the ephod and set it up in his city and they worshipped that ephod and it was a representation not of their God but of the Baals who gave them prosperity, they thought. So again, we found the story ends with a downward slide of the people of God after having been delivered by God. They didn't recognize the deliverance was from His hand. And sadly to say, that trend will continue over and over again. Over the course of the next several chapters, we'll see such depravity that is so hard to read, but I think we must in order to grasp the, the to total sinfulness of a people who have rejected the God who loves them. Friends, it is such a warning to us in this day. It is such an important thing for us to realize that 
There but by the grace of God go I. We should be saying this and meaning it and understanding it to be true. This is the warning that God has given to us in His Word. And we need to take careful, careful steps to avoid falling into the traps of the enemy, to tempt us into taking things that we should not participate in or, or apply or appropriate to ourselves. It's a dangerous world we live in. There are many challenges ahead. And friends, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us every step of the way. Let us daily turn to Him and ask for His anointing. Ask for His power. Ask for His presence. Ask for His help. And He will give because He loves to give good gifts to His children. Let us never forget these things. Let us always remember God is on our side if we are on His side. Till next time, my friends, God bless you. Grace and peace.